I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.5, Livia Drusilla, Ulysses in a Petticoat. At the end of the last show, I teased that today we will be talking about Livia's relationship with her children, stepchildren, and the rest of the Augustan family. But when I sat down to write this episode, it quickly became apparent that it would make more sense to save all of those fun and games for next week. Instead, today, we're going to be looking more generally at Livia's influence of her husband, the role she played in Roman public life, and the legacy of her time as empress. I really should give up making predictions about how these episodes are going to go, as the proof of the pudding is always elusive until you start eating, so I hope you'll forgive me. I have no new patrons to thank this week, but I would like to thank listener Michelle, who actually upped his monthly patronage. That's really generous of you, mate. I really appreciate it. You can support the podcast and become a patron at patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can find news on the show and general chat on the Facebook page. And if you feel like being extra super amazing, you can leave a review on iTunes as well. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Livia became Empress of Rome, not in name of course, but let's not split hairs over Lamentature, in 27 BCE. And I think it's fair to say that while she had had a significant impact on the direction of political events so far, a lot of it had been in the service of someone else's agenda. There was her first marriage to Nero, which had been arranged by her father in order to cement a link with another supporter of the Liberators. She'd had no say in that. This had of course led to the birth of her children. Her name had then elevated the status of her husband, but she had very little impact on his political career beyond that. When they went on the run, she had supported him, but his return to Rome had little to do with her. We'll never know to what extent she engineered her match with Octavian, but it seems likely that it was as much his idea as it was hers, probably more so. And his actions beyond then, that had ended up with him becoming again, in all but name, Emperor of Rome, 
almost certainly had little to do with her beyond the legitimacy that her Claudian name bestowed. Now, as I've shown in the last two episodes, that broad brush that I just applied isn't quite accurate. She had participated and bought into Augustus's policies and ideas, and certainly was no doormat. But in terms of real independent action, she had not had much of an impact, certainly when compared to her sister-in-law, Octavia Minor. But, as I argued in episode 1.1, a lot of that had to do with the political system. Rome had never had anything resembling an office of first lady or consort before, and there was no tradition at all of women playing a significant role in political affairs. Indeed, they were banned from the Senate House and pretty much any other building where the business of state was formally carried out. But the new system that was being built around Augustus provided her with openings to have an influence. Some were done in concert with her husband, but others she had a far more personal role in pushing through. As I've said a couple of times already, Rome had not yet transitioned itself into becoming a hereditary monarchy. The political rules for the new system were being written in real time, and no one knew what would happen next, let alone what system would be enacted to replace Augustus. It might be a hereditary system, but it could equally be something else. And even if it was hereditary, there was no clear idea for whom the best candidate would be. It was all very much up in the air. One feature of absolute power is that by concentrating everything into the hands of one person, you make him the centre of gravity for an entire state. And therefore everyone around him is elevated in importance simply because of proximity. Thus Livia and her children became elevated in status and vastly more important politically simply by virtue of being the wife and stepchildren of a man who had made himself the all-powerful dictator of a vast empire. Family was everything to Augustus. Not because he was an especially loving father and husband, but because, in his view, his family reflected his values and virtues to the rest of the empire. This is particularly true of his wife and sister. They were there to enhance his reputation and popularity. And for the first half of his reign, this all went rather well. I've called this series The First First Ladies of Rome, and we've already seen how Livia has acted in a way that a modern first lady might be required today in terms of moral probity and family values, though Mark Antony might have had something to say about that. But other similarities exist between Livia and her modern counterparts, and one of them is in campaigning. Now, of course, Augustus did not campaign for votes like modern politicians, but he did go on many trips across the empire, as being seen by his subjects was very important in cementing his rule. And he often brought Livia along with him, showing just how important she was in projecting his image and reflecting his values. Now, if you are imagining Livia walking around the empire hand in hand with her husband, shaking hands with the crowds and kissing babies, then you'd be wrong. It was far more luxurious than that. She would have been conveyed in the imperial litter, a huge great silk canopied carriage carried either on wheels or on the shoulders of slaves. Behind this would be further carts and wagons carrying more slaves and attendants waiting to serve the imperial couple at every stop. It all sounds very civilised. Her principal job on these trips was to be seen, to project the image of Augustus, but she did do more than that. 
The sources don't pay much attention to what she did do, but we know that she dedicated objects to various shrines in important places throughout the empire, such as at Delphi in Greece. But she had more of a substantive influence as well. And we know this thanks to the Samos letter. Samos is a Greek island just off the coast of Turkey, and was a favoured stopping ground for the imperial couple when they travelled to the east. The Samosians had written to Augustus, asking them to be freed from imperial control, and Livia sympathised with their plight. This is because the Claudian family had links to the island, and therefore Livia viewed its inhabitants as her clients. On their first trip there, Augustus refused the overtures of the islanders and his wife, and we know this because of a letter that he wrote to them that was discovered in the 1960s, inscribed on a wall of a theatre on the island. Quote, you yourselves can see that I have given the privilege of freedom to no people except the Aphrodisians, who took my side in the war and were captured by storm because of their devotion to us. For it is not right to give the favour of the greatest privilege of all at random and without cause. I am well disposed to you and should like to do a favour to my wife, who is active on your behalf, but not to the point of breaking my custom. For I am not concerned for the money which you pay towards the tribute, but I am not willing to give the most highly prized privileges to anyone without good cause. It was quite unusual for Augustus to write a letter such as this, and still more so that he would so directly reference the influence of his wife. But the story doesn't end here, because Livia clearly did not give up on the cause of Samosian liberty, shown by the fact that, the following year, Augustus did break his custom and grant the islanders their freedom. The people of Samos knew, though, who their real hero was, as archaeologists have found numerous statues dedicated to the woman who had won their independence. Moreover, they bear the name Drusilla, linking her to her family name, not to that of her husband. Now, while this may, on the face of it, seem a little mundane, this is really super important. The first thing is that it shows Livia's tenacity. She was not someone to simply hear a sob story, tell her husband about it, only for him to lecture about why acting on it was impossible, then for her to meekly agree and drop the whole thing. She clearly pushed him on this and persuasively argued her case. Augustus wasn't being a doormat here either. He had initially said no to her. But she persisted and she got her way. Second, it shows that Augustus was not a man who was ruled by his wife, but was willing to listen to her. There are plenty of powerful men throughout history who would have angrily told his wife to quit nagging him and stay away from things that didn't concern her. But he didn't do that. That he finally came around says a lot to both her ability to persuade and his faith and trust in her. And thirdly, it clearly displays her continuing loyalty to her Claudian heritage. While Augustus was happy to exploit her family name for his own advantage, he had absolutely no skin in helping her to promote the interests of her clients. This was all her, and a great example of her using her power and influence for her own ends, not just those of her husband. Her influence over her husband wasn't just known in Greece. Over in Judea, the sister of King Herod, yes, that Herod, had a sister named Salome. She was, in general, very obedient, but she broke with her brother over the subject of her marriage. She had become friends with Livia when she and Augustus had visited the region some time previously and asked for help to intercede with the emperor to get Herod to change his mind. 
On this occasion, however, Livia advised her friend to knuckle under and accept her brother's decision. She knew, from her own experience, where to pick her battles, which ones could be won and which could not. And she recognised that, on this, it would be better for Salome's long-term interests if she didn't break with her brother over this. Not only did Salome accept this advice, but on her death many years later, she left Livia three whole cities in her will, a huge bequeathal. Now, it was not that unusual for Roman women to act as intermediaries for their husbands. It had long been recognised that a good way to get to a powerful man was to get his wife on side and for her to persuade him. But there are two big differences between this and what Livia was able to do. First, in the past, this was all very hush-hush and done in private, and it was unheard of for women to be rewarded for their involvement. Here, Livia's influence was well-known and recorded for posterity, literally inscribed in stone in the Samos case, and her rewards for doing so were well-publicised. And second, no man had ever had so much power as Augustus. And so, by extension, no woman had ever been able to exercise so much influence through intercession with him. The greatest example that we have, though, of Livia interceding on behalf of another came in 16 BCE. The grandson of Pompey the Great, a man named Gnaeus Cornelius Cinna, had led a conspiracy to depose Augustus. Cassius Dio reports that the emperor was in two minds as to how to deal with Cinna. Should he be lenient or execute him as an example to others who may wish to overthrow him. When Livia asked him what was the matter, he explained the situation, and she gave him the following counsel. Now, I'm not going to quote the whole lot of it in full, because it is really super long and would take up most of the rest of the episode. But I will give you the most important sections. If you would like to read more, then I have linked the relevant section in the show notes. Quote, I have some advice to give you, that is, if you are willing to receive it, and will not censure me because I, though a woman, dare suggest to you something which no one else, even of your most intimate friends, would venture to suggest. Not because they are not aware of it, but because they are not bold enough to speak. I have an equal share in your blessings and your ills, and as long as you are safe, I also have my part in reigning, whereas if you come to any harm, may the gods forbid, I shall perish with you. It seems to me that far more wrongs are set right by kindness than by harshness. For those who forgive are not only loved by the objects of their clemency, who will therefore even strive to repay the favour, but are also respected and revered by all the rest, who will therefore not readily venture to harm them. You are ruling over human beings, not wild beasts. And the only way you can make them truly well disposed toward you is by convincing them by every means and on every occasion consistently, that you will wrong no one, either purposefully or unwittingly. A man can be compelled to fear another, but he ought to be persuaded to love him, and he is persuaded not only by the good treatment he himself receives, but also by the benefits he sees conferred upon others. The man, however, who suspects that a certain person has been put to death unjustly, both fears that he may some day meet a like fate, and is compelled to hate the one who is responsible for the deed, and to be hated by one's subjects, quite apart from its being deplorable in general, is also exceedingly unprofitable. Hence, and for these reasons I give you my opinion to the effect, that you should not inflict the death penalty upon any man for such offences, 
but should rather bring them to their senses in some other way, so that they will not in future commit any crime. The sword surely cannot accomplish everything for you. It would indeed be a great boon if it could bring men to their senses and persuade them, or even compel them to love a ruler with genuine affection. But instead, while it will destroy the body of one man, it will alienate the minds of the rest. For people do not become more attached to anyone because of the vengeance they see meted out to others, but they become more hostile because of their fears. Heed me, therefore, dearest, and change your course. If you do, all your other acts that have caused displeasure will be thought to have been dictated by necessity. But if you continue in your old policy, you will be thought to have done these unpleasant things deliberately. The preservation of this little pep talk from Livia by her husband is interesting for two reasons. The first is that it clearly shows that Augustus was highly interested in using Livia in the role of the compassionate woman to his stoic manliness. She is not throwing himself at his feet and begging for mercy to be turned to sinner, as later Queen's consort would so often do, but she is still being portrayed in that merciful role. It allowed him to appear benevolent and merciful without looking weak. Once again, this harks back to the great Roman women of the past that I have mentioned a few times. But more interestingly, this little speech once again reveals Livia's highly tuned political antenna. The natural response in this situation would have been to kill Cinna and his fellow conspirators. There are not many examples in Imperial Roman history of people plotting against the Emperor being caught and then living to tell the tale. But she knew that this situation required something a little more crafty. The regime was still not necessarily strong enough to be able to get away with such a punishment. Augustus had come to power thanks to some pretty violent and brutal means, but this was not necessarily the best way to govern. Better to rule through the winning of hearts and minds rather than through fear, and Livia recognised this. She had a shrewd mind, and this is very evident here. And again, obversely, it shows the faith that Augustus had in his wife, because this is no small matter on which he is asking for her counsel. This is a political decision, one of state security, and he is taking her advice seriously. So seriously, in fact, that he acted upon it, and Cinna was pardoned. This is not the only example of a surviving letter between Livia and Augustus, where they exchange advice, and Augustus treats Livia as, if not an equal, then certainly not someone to be ignored. The second letter concerns her grandson, a figure of fun in the family, but who would go on to become the Emperor Claudius. She had asked Augustus' advice on a matter regarding whether he should be permitted to take charge of a religious festival. Augustus says that, on balance, he believes that Claudius should be allowed to do so, but he then goes on to say that he was willing to leave the final decision up to her. He writes, quote, You have my views, my dear Livia, to wit that I desire that something be decided once and for all about the whole matter, to save us from constantly wavering between hope and fear. He does not order her to do anything. He recognises that he was asked for advice. He gives it, and then says that the decision is up to her. That is some pretty high-quality husbanding, if I may say so myself, and it again exemplifies her influence. Of course, we only know about these examples and others that exist, because they were committed to writing, and one imagines that the reason they were done so was because they were separated. Who knows what kind of influence Livia had over Augustus while they were together in the Imperial Palace when committing such things to writing would not have occurred to them. We can never know for sure. 
If we continue our First Lady comparison from earlier, we are seemingly dealing with a Hillary Clinton light, or maybe a Rosalind Carter type character. Someone who is not just a confidant of her husband, but also an advisor. And the similarities between Livia and modern political wives continues, as she was also interested in charity work. Though I think it's fair to say that this was a thoroughly self-interested charity. Though, again, to be fair, isn't that the case most of the time? She was well known for giving money to parents in order they be able to afford to bring up their children in relative comfort, and would also contribute towards the dowries of girls of lesser means so that they might be better able to gain good marriages. The amount of money being given on these occasions was, relative to Livia's immense wealth, fairly paltry, but it would have made a major difference to the lives of those to whom she was donating. But this wasn't just out of the milk of her human kindness. Cassius Dio, never one to be that complimentary Olivia, wrote that the Senate honoured her after her death because, quote, she had saved the lives of not a few of them, had reared the children of many, and had helped many to pay their daughters' dowries. He is making the point here that she did it all for the glory and the acclaim that generosity can impart. But while I would not discount that as a reason, I think there is another better explanation for why she did this. The women and girls to whom she directed a lot of her charity were often from noble families that had fallen on hard times. Status did not necessarily equal wealth even then. By helping them out, she was adding them to her list of clients, expanding not only her influence, but to an extent, by extension, Augustus's as well. She was using her own wealth, that had been granted to her, remember, back before her husband even became emperor, to help improve her own influence and political position. She also did this through using her wealth to launch her own building programme. Though there were some buildings and landmarks around Rome that had been built by, or were named after, Roman women, no one can top Livia in this regard. This was in the context of a great construction and regeneration of the Eternal City that took place during Augustus's reign. Some of the most famous structures built during his reign include the Forum of Augustus, the Mausoleum of Augustus, the Portico of Octavia, and the Aquas Julia and Virgo, and the temples to Apollo and Mars. Not for nothing is Augustus famous for making the boast that he had found a city made of mud and bricks, and left it as a city of marble. The area for which Livia took most interest was the rebuilding of temples and shrines that had fallen into disrepair. Of course, it wouldn't have been proper for her being involved in the rebuilding of political buildings. Unsurprisingly, the religious buildings that she tended to be involved with were dedicated to goddesses of women and family. These included temples to Bonadea Subsaxana and Fortuna Muliebris. The former was related to fertility, and so this was possibly in an attempt to gain favour with her so that she may have more children. The latter, Fortuna Muliebris, translates in English to the fortune or the luck of women, and had been built initially in tribute to the wife and sister of Coriolanus, Volumnia and Veturia both women with whom Livia would have wanted to be associated. She also personally dedicated shrines to chastity cults, good solid propaganda move there. Outside of religious building works, she also gave her name to secular buildings, such as the Michaelum Livier, a great public market, and possibly also had an influence in the absolutely stunning Theatre of Marcellus. The most famous structure to be named for her, though, is something entirely different. The Porticus Livier, or... Livia's portico. 
A portico is basically a very fancy porch attached to a big fancy building, or a colonnade built alongside one. Sadly, Livia's portico does not survive, but we do know that it basically functioned as an elaborately built covered walkway, filled with plants, vines, artworks, and pleasant places to sit. We know from the letters of Pliny the Younger and other sources that it was a favoured meeting place because of its beauty. The great ancient Greek traveller Strabo wrote in his great travel book Geography that, quote, If on passing to the old forum, you saw one forum after another ranged along the old one, and basilicas and temples, and saw also the Capitoline, and the works of art there, and those of the Palatine, and Livia's portico, you would easily become oblivious to everything else outside. Such is Rome. To link this structure, dedicated to a living woman no less, to some of the great buildings of ancient Rome, just shows how powerful and influential she was. It was also known for some slightly more salacious reasons. The poet Ovid in Ars Amatoria, a treatise in verse which was basically an ancient Roman dating manual, wrote that if you wanted to meet young women of dubious morals, then, quote, omit not to visit that portico, which, adorned with ancient pictures, is called the Portico of Livia, after its foundress. This was probably not what she had in mind when she gave it her name. So we've talked a lot in this episode so far about Livia and Augustus' political partnership. But what of their marriage? Augustus, as we shall see in next week's episode, had a peculiar obsession with marriage. He was very concerned that Romans be faithful to and love their spouses, and while he looked around Rome and despaired at how the aristocracy were acting in their own marriages, it appears that he was very happy in his own. Indeed, Suetonius claims that he, quote, loved and esteemed her to the end without a rival. And Cassius Dio claims that Augustus once said, quote, Is there anything better than a wife who is chaste, domestic, a good housekeeper, a rearer of children, one to gladden you in health, to tend you in sickness, to be your partner in good fortune, to console you in misfortune, to restrain the mad passion of youth, and to temper the unreasonable harshness of old age? You may notice that prominently nestled within that list of qualities that a wife was supposed to have was being a rearer of children. As I've mentioned before, Livia was unable to provide Augustus with a child, something that was a profound disappointment to him, and a source of head-scratching amongst observers. Suetonius wrote that, quote, By Scribonia had a daughter, Julia. By Livia, no children at all, although he earnestly desired issue. Pliny the Elder, in his natural history, speculated that maybe they just weren't biologically compatible. Quote, there exists a kind of peculiar antipathy between the bodies of certain persons, which, though barren with respect to each other, are not so when united to others. Such, for instance, was the case with Augustus and Livia. Their marriage's childlessness was of no small importance. Augustus's reign, particularly the second half, was overshadowed by the question of the succession, something that we will be talking a lot about next week. But that would never have been necessary had he and Livia had a son. It was a giant headache for him, yet it seems that divorcing Livia was not something that he was prepared to countenance. This speaks to the importance that he placed on their marriage beyond the production of an heir, and this makes him stand out from so many monarchs throughout history. I mean, imagine him trying to explain this to Henry VIII. It shows how much he valued her presence, her counsel, and of course her status as a high-ranking noblewoman. So far as I can tell, no source, no matter how hostile, 
accuses Livia of infidelity, which given the number of other accusations thrown at her door, is pretty good evidence that she was scrupulously faithful to Augustus. She was famed for claiming that, quote, to chaste women, naked men are no different from statues. A clear signal of her moral brand, as it were. Chastity and fidelity were core virtues for Augustus, and ones that he preached to everyone in the empire. To everyone, of course, except himself. Augustus was a well-known philanderer, and Livia was under no illusions that he would abide by his own rules. She was once asked late in life how it was that she was able to have so much influence over her husband. She replied, quote, It was by being scrupulously chaste herself, doing gladly whatever pleased him, not meddling with any of his affairs, and, in particular, by pretending neither to hear nor to notice the favourites of his passion. One of his most notable mistresses was Terentia, the wife of one of his great friends, and he was accused by Cassius Dio of using some of his overseas trips as an excuse to have some fun with her, but there were many others as well. Now, most sources claim that Livia merely turned a blind eye to all of this. Boys will be boys, after all. But Suetonius goes one step further, claiming that she was complicit in them. He writes, quote, Augustus could not dispose of the charge of lustfulness, and they say that, even in his later years, he was fond of deflowering maidens, who were brought together for him from all quarters, even by his own wife. This accusation is not repeated widely, and seems a touch unlikely. Augustus had affairs, yes, but this kind of debauchery is more a feature of later emperors. But, as I said earlier, Livia faced no such claims, and indeed was placed front and centre in Augustus's moral crusade, and she found that she could use that to her advantage to promote her own image. One way she did that was in the wearing of the stola. I talked last week about how Livia used a conservative, classic, timeless hairstyle as a signal of her being a far more moral and virtuous woman than Cleopatra. Well, this happened too with her choice of dress. The stola was nothing new, indeed it had been around for several centuries, but it was rarely worn in public until Livia adopted it. It was a shift of heavy fabric, often wool, hanging from the shoulders to the ground. Over it was often worn a mantle, or pala, which added further layers of fabric. If that sounds particularly unflattering, that's because it was, but that was the point. The idea, as with conservative religious clothing in Christian years, was to effectively hide a woman's beauty and adopt a more modest look. The only concession to fashion was the choice of colour, which was up to the woman. Livia, for example, was known for wearing red and purple stola, depending on the situation. If you're struggling to picture what a stola looked like, then you're in luck, as the most famous stola wearer in history is not Livia, but is in fact Lady Liberty. The Statue of Liberty in New York Harbour is of the Roman goddess Libertas, and she, like many of the nicer Roman goddesses, is often depicted in this conservative costume. Ovid describes the stola as being, quote, the badge of chastity, and this was further underlined when laws were passed banning prostitutes and convicted adulteresses from being permitted to wear it. It was a symbol of being a virtuous Roman woman, and Livia was holding herself up to the very highest standard, both by wearing the stola and by promoting its use. The Emperor Caligula, her great-grandson, later described Livia as being Ulysses in a stola, sometimes translated as being Ulysses in a petticoat. He meant it as a clever slur, 
insulting her as being cunning and devious and yet conservative and behind the times. Yet unwittingly, I think it also describes her rather well. Much like that great hero of the Trojan War, Livia was not able to exercise power through traditional means. She had to use her intelligence, bravery, force of character, and of course cunning to make her mark on the world. Historian Matthew Dennison talks of, quote, Livia's skill in concealing within the clothes of virtuous femininity a less passive, more incisive mind. And that, I think, sums her ability to influence Augustus and be a real player in Roman politics quite well. But this was not her main objective as empress. She had political ambitions of her own to be sure, but her overriding goal was to ensure the succession of her eldest son Tiberius. His career and his elevation to the purple was a constant thread in her life. It is this image of the maternal Livia, the evil stepmother, that is the pervading image that we have of her. How did it come about? Did she murder her son's way to the top? Tune in next week to find out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.